You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good morning. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to have you here today. And it's a great time to gather together again for our series called Untangling Christmas. Okay? Now we're in the fourth week of this. Um, and you know what's amazing to me is this is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. Have you ever heard that song? Yeah. It's the most wonderful. Yeah, I find it the most stressful time of the year. I find it a confusing time of the year. I avoid things like shopping, the mall, um, going out to eat, um, and thank God, um, there's very few Christmas parties on our schedule. I mean, we have them, the hangout tonight, you know, white elephant gift, but that's not stressful. It's some of these office parties and these other things that people have to go to and endure, you know, because, right? Do you have one at your, yeah? You went already? How was it? It was You endured it. You endured it. Yeah. So um, what happens is really, you know, we're put all this pressure on this time of the year to be so wonderful, and we know, in reality, life is a struggle and difficult, and it's not always wonderful because we're just not always wonderful people. <laughs> At least I'm not. Hugo, maybe. I, I better ask your wife. How wonderful is he? Yeah. Um, but the real message of Christmas is God came into this tangled, messy world. And the whole idea of Christmas is Jesus came into the mess of it all. And the manger shows us that. I mean, look at how he was born. <laughs> it's not like he was born um, in a, a maternity ward in some sterile, antiseptic, wonderful, everything, all that. He was born in a barn, you know? It's like, were you born in a barn? Well, Jesus was, okay? So, um, and what we also find out is the prophecies that foretold the birth of this Messiah, Jesus, were not spoken in some vacuum or in some ethereal state where the prophets were like, oh, isn't this wonderful? And look at what's going to happen. And they lived in a real world of Palace intrigue, messy politics, difficult, you name it. It was just a disaster going on at the time of Judah when Isaiah spoke these words, and they were like little pierces of light in the darkness of their day and age. Tell me, um, I'm, you know, I sound like an old man at times. <laughs> man, I have not seen in my lifetime, I don't remember a time quite like this. Do you? Uh, now, I was a kid during the 60s into the 70s, and maybe that was a tumultuous time, and you, some of you remember it more clearly than others. I was two years old, I think, when uh, Kennedy was shot, and I was um, eight years old when we had all sorts of racial conflict going on in the United States and the Vietnam War protests and all that stuff. So I don't remember that time period, but. This is the first time I'm wondering what's going on in our culture. Um, I, it seems to be a tangle of both progress and regress, of both advances and retreats. You know, 
We've got great technology and, and breakthroughs in medicine for cancer and other diseases, but retreats in politics and civic engagement. We still haven't solved some of the basic issues. Uh, we uh, have a world that's more connected than ever and more dangerous than ever. I think uh, words from Martin Luther King Jr. that he spoke years ago during that, you know, the 60s, um, still, still are so sadly true for today. He said, though our scientific and technological genius through it, we have made of this world a neighborhood, and yet we have not had the ethical commitment to make it a brotherhood and a sisterhood. We must all learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will perish together as fools. Mm. Do I hear it? I don't know if you want to say amen to that. <laughs> well, today's reading was one of those crisis cataclysmic times. It's actually kind of a turning point for Judah. In fact, uh, people like, I think it was Gerhard von Rad and other um, uh, scholars and exegetes from you know, 40, 50 years ago said this is the crisis moment, Isaiah 7, that changes the fate of Judah and its future. And it's what happens between Isaiah, the prophet, and Ahaz, the king, that makes all the difference. It's kind of like that turning point. All of a sudden, everything happens in the future as a result. And so we get this really historical passage, and in the midst of it, such an amazing prophecy of what God is still going to do. It just um, blows me away. It just blows me away. Um, by the way, you can look at and read and, uh, the notes for this message on the version of the Bible app. And um, you can follow along with it. It looks like that little holy Bible in the corner of your app. And then you'll find the notes for this sermon. And Kathy always looks them up. She's got them. Do you, say, do you actually take notes? I'm not saying. I'm, I'm just. I just save it to download. You just save it to download later and look at it later? Right. Follow, follow along with Isn't that cool? I think it's pretty cool. I, of course, I never did that when I was young, you know. I just, I, I, as a kid, what do you do? You, I, I looked at the front of the church and counted all the bricks, you know. <laughs> or, <I> was, <laughs> like you endured your Christmas party, I kind of endured church when I was a kid. I was pretty bad that way. Um, so I'm thankful for people who uh, keep coming back. <laughs> okay. So our text today is Isaiah, the whole chapter, chapter 7. It's a very specific moment in the history of Judah. So this is what we're going to read, okay? In the day of Ahaz, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham. Now, realize Uzziah was the great king that died, and after that, things started to go downhill, okay? Isaiah's in this time of Uzziah, but now after that, in the reign of Ahaz, not a great king. He's the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Wow, what a metaphor, huh? 
And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you ha are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. <laughs> and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Syria. If you're a little lost in this text, we'll try to unravel the history behind it. It's kind of like reading the history of, you know, some other foreign power that you don't really know about in ancient history and go like, what are all these people and characters? So we're going to do a little case study to walk us through. Uh, we're going to look at three different uh, people in this text and understand how it does really apply to today, okay? So the way I'm breaking it down is this. We're going to look first at the practical atheist and then a prophet, and then a promise. They're all here. The practical atheist himself is King Ahaz. Now, why do I, what is a practical atheist? A theoretical atheist is someone who says, I do not believe there is a God who exists at all. Ahaz believed God, there was a God, but he practically lived as if there were no God. Do you understand how that works? Most of America, I think, feel, falls into this practical atheism. There is a God who exists. He's over there somewhere. I do my thing, run my life, choose my, my way to go, figure it all out. It's all up to me, really, when it comes down to it. So Ahaz is facing this huge trial and testing. And you see in trials and difficulties and struggles when decisions have to be made and push comes to shove and things are difficult. That's when you see what somebody truly believes in and who their God really is. And for Ahaz, with two different nations, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, right next door, these two next door neighbors just to the north and to the east of Judah, getting together in cahoots with each other to fight against Judah or bring them in, basically saying to him, you either join us or we're going to destroy you and set somebody else up as king. Of course, he and all of Judah, because they're the weakling among the three. 
Now, I was telling um, some of the people that gathered together um, at 920 um, for prayer in the morning that it's kind of like if Canada had the two nations. I know this is hard to understand, but Canada being a lesser, well, I, I love you, Canada, but there's only like 29 million people that live in Canada, I believe. Is that about right? You can look it up, but I think it's around that. It's, you know, um, but it's what? Thirty. Well, close. See, I was pretty close, right? Thirty million people living in Canada, and you've got it's a smaller. That's Judah, and you've got Great Britain and the United States saying either you join with us, or we're going to destroy you. And Canada goes, hmm, what am I going to do? Right? No wonder Judah was shaking like the leaves. Well, Ahaz, in his practical atheism, says. I'm going to turn to another nation, Assyria, the up-and-coming power. It'd be like Canada going like, we're going, to, we're going to make league with Russia because that's going to save us. Do you understand how that would work? And Isaiah goes like, that ain't going to save you. It's going to cause more trouble. You just wait. You just wait. So what does Ahaz actually do? When he hears this, does he pray? Does he call for the prophet to get advice? No, 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 no. He does neither of those. He has already made up his mind. He has already sent off emissaries to Assyria, this up-and-coming power that later on is going to destroy all the other nations around them <laughs> and make Judah into a puppet state. He thinks he's figured it out. He's the practical atheist. Ahaz, in that sense, is seduced by power. And why not? Because most people are in this world. It's the true currency of how the world works, right? It's power, the power of money, the power of propaganda, the power of military might, the power of the atom, the power of religious fanaticism or ideology, the power of destruction. The power of the gun, the power of a lie repeated so often it sounds like truth. The power of people massed together in a mob mentality. We've seen everybody these days believing in these things. That's how you get things to happen in this world. It's so seductive. What's so sad is when we play God, we do so badly at playing God. We're nothing like God when we do it. Isaiah <clears throat> In another place in his prophecy, in the chapter 30 of his book, he tells Israel something similar to what's going on when he speaks to Ahaz here. He says in Isaiah 30, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and trust shall be your strength. In other words, it's, it's in the promise of God. It's not in the power. It's not in your might. It's not in your understanding. It's not in your... Um, political shenanigans. It's not in any of those things. It is going to be trusting in God, returning to him. That's where your strength really is. That's the source of your real power. But sadly, this verse goes on. And it says, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and trust shall be your strength. And here's that turning point. But you were unwilling. Ahaz was unwilling. Isaiah said, 
if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you don't stand on faith, you're going to fall apart. And Ahaz chose to fall apart. And Judah fell apart. It was downhill from here. It's all that one decision to believe the prophet and the promise or to believe in himself and a God of power, if you want to call it that way, or his own power and his own ability to figure it out, the practical atheist. I, and I said, most people today are more or less practical atheists. They believe God exists. I think it's well over 80% of our population still believes there is a God. But we don't really expect God to do anything. Have you ever noticed? We pray kind of as a last resort when everything else doesn't work. <laughs> Not at the beginning. And, I, you know, and how, can I fault people, even some who go to church? What you're going to find in churches is not a message, well, a message of self-help and a message of can-do and a message of pop psychology, which is another way of saying, trust yourself, you figure it out, you've got to do it. God might show up later, but you better do your part first. That's really practical atheism, according to the Bible. You believe there is a God, but he's really, you've got to kind of coerce him to joining you and doing something with you in order, but you really make the difference. You make the change. That's not living by the God of the scriptures that we know, revealed here through this prophet, through the rest of the Old Testament, and into the New at all. Arthur McGill, um, I think a few decades ago, I think said it well about what practical atheism is like. He said, whether people serve themselves or serve others, whether they find identity by having, like holding on to stuff, or by expending, giving it away, it's not in their power to choose. This is decided only in terms of the kind of world in which they think they live, in terms of the kind of power which they think they see ruling the roost. The issue lies at the level of the God they worship, and not in the kind of person they want to be. In New Testament terms, they live or die according to the king that holds them and the kingdom to which they belong. Practical atheists believe in a God of power, not the God of scriptures and promise. And therefore, they're going to live by trying to figure it out themselves rather than trusting in God, returning to him, living and serving and giving. And so this is the practical atheist Ahaz and how he, because of his cho choice, even before Isaiah spoke, all of Judah turns and the history goes that they go into exile to return back and never have a king again, well, until, and we'll get to that. So now we're going to look at the prophet. So in comes God's prophet Isaiah. And he comes in, what's fascinating here, and this happens, prophets are just really interesting characters. I don't know if you realize this. Often their lives themselves are examples or messages. It's not just the words they speak, but how they live and things that they do. Ezekiel did all sorts of crazy things that God told them to do. Isaiah did a few of them himself. And in fact, Isaiah's children and the names of his children become part of his message. And so Isaiah is called to bring his son Sheer Jashub with him, okay? And Sheer Jashub is both a threat and a promise in a sense. It says, a remnant shall return is his name. So he comes to Ahaz 
Um, as Ahaz inspecting the water supply of Ju uh, Jerusalem, because you know they might be under siege from Ephraim and from Syria, uh, uh, Syria. And so he was checking this out to make sure they had enough water and all this stuff. And Isaiah comes and says, uh, and, and brings his son, a remnant will return, saying, already God is going to send you into exile, but, but the promise is God is going to keep you and hold you. And through this, he's going to bring back a remnant. And Ahaz, seeing this choice before him, well, he doesn't really want God involved at all. He's made up his mind. You know, Isaiah says, God with us, Emmanuel, this will be your sign. And Ahaz says, I don't really want a sign. Don't, don't give me signs. Don't tell me. Don't get me involved in this. Um, now, he says it nicely, oh, I will not test the Lord God. You know what's so amazing is here in the Bible, one of the few places ever that God calls and says, I'm offering you something that I don't offer to anybody else. You can test me. Ask me to do anything. Because I want Judah to survive and thrive. You can ask me any. You can put me to the test right now, and I will give you a sign to confirm that you can trust me. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and Isaiah says, well, you're going to get one anyways. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. And by the time this child is just about a teen, these nations you're so scared of are going to be nothing before you. They're going to be destroyed. And he'll be eating curds and honey. Things are going to be tough. It's not going to be great life. But God is still with you. God with us. That's the sign. Now, what's fascinating to me is the Hebrew scriptures, the God of Israel, is so different from the gods around um, the cultures around Israel. And that is that the God of Israel is both transcendent, that is, he is above it all, beyond it all, beyond our comprehension, greater than us, but also absolutely imminent, absolutely involved in our lives. The gods of the other nations, they're basically transcendent. And once in a while, if you got their attention, if you did enough sacrifices, if you gave enough, if you yanked the chain of whatever they needed, you could maybe get them involved in your life once in a while. But the God of the Hebrew scriptures is always present. In fact, in Psalm 139, I don't have this as a slide, but in Psalm 139, <laughs> Asaph, the writer of the psalm, says, where can I go from your presence? How can I escape and flee from, from your spirit? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, you're there. There is no place to escape from God. God knows you better than you know yourself. God is always imminent. God is always present. God is so close to you, you can't even, you're, he's closer to you than you are to yourself. He knows you better than you know yourself. Years ago, um, I think I read the book, actually. At least I remember it in front of my face, but I don't remember much of the content. And I remember the title. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book. He was a Christian apologist uh, from Switzerland, came to the United States, and wrote a number of books. 
And um, he uh, was a philosopher, and, a and he wrote a book. He called it The God Who Is There because he was afraid people wanted to dismiss the existence of God. Um, I really don't think that's the greatest title or the greatest purpose of a book is to try to prove to, uh, uh, to people that God exists somewhere. <laughs> the Bible doesn't care if God is there. The Bible speaks of God who is here. Huge difference. Because, like I said, most people in the United States believe in God somewhere. But is God here? It, can God be trusted right now in this circumstance, in this crisis, in this difficult time? God is here. That's the, the Bible speaks from beginning to end. God is with us, here, present. We're in front of him. We're always in relation to him. You can be for him and with him. You can be part of his way like Isaiah. You can be in his way like Ahaz. But God's going to get his way, and God is present. This is his world. And so Ahaz may want to avoid God at this moment, do his own thing, try to stay in power, get it his way. It ain't going to work. God is going to have his way. So a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And he will grow up. And as a teen, these nations are already destroyed. And so your question is like probably going like, well, where did this kid come from? And who is this kid? A lot of biblical scholars are trying to figure out who this child is during Isaiah's lifetime. Most agree, and I think it's true. You read Isaiah chapter 8, the next chapter, guess what happens? The prophetess, his wife, has a child, and his name now is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> right there. Can you imagine that name for your child? I think there is some famous person these days. Is there like a football player or some athlete that's called Maher Shalal Hashbaz? Anybody know? I don't keep up with this stuff, but I think somebody has that name. Pretty infrequent, right? It means quick to the plunder, speedy to the spoil. God is with us. God's going to be involved in the history of Judah, and because you turned away from him, he's going to be with you, but not the way that you might want. He's going to plunder this nation through the king of Babylon. He's going to destroy this nation and its temple and take you away. And a remnant, Shir Jashub, shall return to this land. He's going to have his way. God was with him, and he was working against Ahaz now because Ahaz was not willing to trust because of Ahaz's unbelief. Like I said, you can be part of God's way like Isaiah, in God's way like Ahaz, but God is going to get his way. But there's a promise in all this. Years later, this prophecy is used again, right? You've heard it, probably. It's from the Gospel of Matthew. 
when Joseph hears about um, his betrothed, Mary, being uh, pregnant, he's trying to figure out what to do with her. And Matthew has, records this. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Like Isaiah's time, the time that Joseph and Mary lived in, the time that Jesus was born in was a disastrous mess. It wasn't Assyria, it was Rome. And names like Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate and Caesar Augustus and Quirinius and Herod, these were the power players who believed in power and were practical atheists who put themselves at the center of attention and pushed the people one way and another. And the question is, again, are you going to believe that God still has a way in this world, even with all the powers that are going on in the chaotic tangle of a mess that history is like? And the answer is that Emmanuel, God with us, well, the true king is found in a manger. The true king becomes a refugee in Egypt. The true king becomes a homeless, itinerant preacher in Galilee. And the true king is crucified with two criminals, one on his right and left. And yet he's the true king. He's the God of promise who says, I'm going to be with you no matter what you do to me. I'm going to be with you no matter what this world throws at me. I'm going to be with you and bring you through it all and have my will done in your life. I would say we live, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, in a tangled mess of a world right now. And if we don't feel puny and small like Judah at this point in time, or our church feels like, I don't know how things are going to work out, or you don't feel like, I have no idea what's going on in our culture and what the next step is, I'd be surprised. If you don't feel like you're shaking like a tree in the wind at times with the news that we hear about, not just the natural disasters like we heard about in Kentucky and elsewhere, nor, uh, but the political machinations that have been going on for the last few years in our country, but also the world powers of the issues that are going on across the world. I'm sorry, it's not what North Korea does or Russia does. It's not what Canada does or the United States does or any nation does. It is what God has promised and what God is doing and what God is going to bring about. Nations will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God remains forever. God is still with us. And as far as churches go, too often I think we've acted like practical atheists, Christians collected together, and that is we think it's all about budgets and strategic plans we're scared about, um, you know, we look at economics and demographics and all those things are important and yet they are not what makes or breaks any church. It's about God's spirit. It's about God's mission. It's about Emmanuel. God is with us. 
And the kingdom of God does not grow through power politics. We may not fall into that. I mean, being a smaller church, we would never dare think that we can play power politics with the United States. But our problem might be more like uh, all we fall into is survival mode. Just want to take care of my family, myself. You know, just get through things. So we still, in a sense, are worshiping power because we feel powerless. It's time we realize God is with us. God is with us. The God who runs the universe, the God who through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ Guaranteed he is with us. The God who keeps his promises, the God who makes promises and keeps promises is with us. The God who created this world, the God who redeemed this world, the God who will renew this world, the God who is going to gather his people together forever. That's the God who is with us and our lives are centered on him. And it's very possible the nations will go in their directions and the sign of Emmanuel will be dismissed and ignored, <laughs> but at their peril. Emmanuel, the child who's powerless, helpless, vulnerable, needy, this child born with us and for us and in our midst, who struggles with us, who feels our pain, who understands and carries our burden, who sacrifices himself for us, is the one who is going to bring us into the kingdom. If we don't stand firm in faith, we won't stand at all. That word from uh, spoken to Isaiah is a challenge and also a promise I think is true for us today. And you might go, well, <laughs> that basically means I'm not standing because I, I have not trusted so often I have fallen. God doesn't give you just one chance to believe or trust him. He doesn't go like, oh, well, you blew it that time, that's it, no more. He keeps calling to us to bring us back to the profound truth that he is still with us. I like what R.J. Hyman said. He said, in our constant quest for happiness, for peace, the answer is to be found not in the quest for control, but in the release of it. As we walk through life constantly frustrated by our ability to be and do what we want, the answer is not self-mastery, but rather the love of the master. Don't try to control it all. Yeah, it might seem so cliche to say it, but it is really more about letting go and letting God than it is about trying to control. Ahaz couldn't do that. He could not do that. I think that is the call for us today. Um, I'm hoping, James, that we might sing this carol this Christmas Eve, but I don't know if you've got it planned. Maybe you will now. It's one of my favorites. It's the, um, I don't even know who wrote it, but it's O Little Town of Bethlehem. And man, I think some of the words are just so profound. It kind of sums up a lot of what we've been talking about today. So we're going to use that as a closing prayer for our message. And you um, can read the words on the screen as, um, and let us pray these, okay? How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. 
So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, and cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, their great glad tidings tell, O come to us, abide with us. Our Lord, Emmanuel. Lord God, that is your name. You are with us even when we, don't, we can't push you away. We, can't, we may forget about you, but you don't forget about us. We may not um, see you, but you continue to see us. There is no place we can go that you are not present. We pray, Lord God, we need you to be present in this church, in our lives, absolutely involved in it, and we want to place our whole lives and trust you and lose control of ourselves and let go of ourselves to let you, O oh God, be our Emmanuel. Lord, too often we have, <laughs> and forgive us when we have, we have <laughs> bought into the world of power and thought that's what really makes things work. No, Lord. It's your love, your mercy, and your promises. We're going to faithfully follow you. Lord, thank you for the example of Ahaz because it's a warning to us all. And thank you for the example of Isaiah who's a model for us all. But thank you most, Lord Jesus, for your presence and your birth because you are Savior of all. Lord, we do have names and people in our midst that need your help we thank you, Lord, that um, you've been with Jeff Blankenship throughout uh, his stay in the hospital. We pray that you bring healing to his heart. We pray for Otto the same. We lift up to you, O oh Lord, um, so many who need your care and, and love and concern. For um, Hal, who has had um, a cancer in his eye, Lord, and we pray, Lord, this therapy works and that you bring healing and you get the glory for that healing, Lord, not the doctors or anything that we do, but you get the glory in his life. We lift up to you Amanda and her family, Lord. We thank you that we're able to come alongside of her and befriend her and support her during a time of both crisis and joy with the birth of a child. We pray, Lord, that you would bless and keep her in your care. Lord, we lift up to you Bob and his need for um, potential liver transplant. Lord God, we pray that you provide the way and be with him and Joan throughout all of these things. Lord, we need you to be who you really are, Lord. Help us to just trust that you are Emmanuel, God, with us and that we can count on you as the promise keeper, the promise maker, the way maker. Lord God. And Lord, we pray for our church. You know how it's been through the last, um, well, almost two years, not quite, with COVID and everything else throughout our nation. We pray for the Christian church. We've gone through this, Lord, and it's been tough. Draw us closer to you. Renew us and lead us and guide us. Forgive us, Lord, when we have not trusted you, when we've despaired. Forgive us, Lord, for these things. We pray, Lord, we know here at Thrive, we're not a huge congregation in any way. And yet, it's not about the numbers, Lord. It's about your promises. It's about your spirit. And we know you just took 12, 12 fallible, and through them 
and through other followers, Lord, men and women, just a handful beyond that, you change the world. We pray that you would use us, Lord, for the sake of your kingdom in this community and world, Lord. That you would bless our ministries and our missions, our work and our support of Mission Haiti and, and other places, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would supply all that we need as a congregation financially as well, Lord, for the sake of a ministry to both Florida Gulf Coast as well as the greater community here in Southwest Florida. And that you would renew your people both here in this church and across this area that you are glorified, you are lifted up. And Lord, as we prepare now to uh, give our offerings, we ask that you would uh, with these offerings that we would give ourselves and give thanks to you. And as we receive, Lord, um, this bread and wine, we receive everything that you give us, Lord, as you intimately commune with us, Lord God. So into your care and keeping, we place all of these and many other needs that are in our hearts and lives, confident you've heard us and you are with us, Emmanuel. In your name we pray, amen.